Okay, well, welcome to the session on Lister bacteria and artifacts. Um, you can certainly see the artifacts here at the back, um, and Sam Alberti will tell us something about that. No doubt there are bacteria in the room um, as, as, as well. Um, and I'm not sure if there are any of this as family. Um, yeah, so yes, so we have, so we have, we, we have everything, everything is in the room, um, so you can chuck it off. Um, okay, well, it's a great pleasure to, um, to start this session. Uh, we have, we have three speakers, and we're going to run it so that it's going to be speaker questions, speaker questions, speaker questions, and we have two hours, so it's roughly about forty minutes each. Um, so we'll do it, do it that way. Um, I'll keep the introductions brief. Um, we're going to start off with Sir Ronnie McSween, um, who is now Emeritus Professor of Pathology at Glasgow. He is well known for his work on histopathology. Um, he edited Muir's Pathology. I think I had the first edition at home. Uh, I'm not sure which edition you edited. It wasn't the first. It wasn't the first. No, no, no. about 56 or 57. Um, but he's especially well known for his work on liver disease. And today he's going to talk appropriately on Lister pathologies. This scene largely arose by a bit of serendipity. The museum at Glasgow University were anxious to retrieve Lister's microscope, which he had used when he was in the Royal Infirmary. So they arranged to get this microscope, and I was asked to have a look at it. And in the box in which the microscope came, there were five or six glass slides with stained sections on them. <coughs> and I said, whoopee, <laughs> I put some of Lister's original microscopy. Completely wrong, of course. But as a result of that, I decided to interest myself a bit more in, in Lister's path, Lister's career. And in particular, I was aware already that he did have an interest in pathology. So as a result of this, I got into the archives at the Royal College of Surgeons here, where there's a lot of material indicating Lister's interest in pathology. And that's what talk about, it really represents a series of clinical pathological conferences in which the illustrated material comes from Lister, and many of them were hand done, and in which the details, the clinical account, also comes from Lister. And you will see the lengths to which you went in describing these cases. This is Lister, the pathologist. Glasgow, of course, makes a major claim on Lister in that it was when he was in Glasgow that he published papers which brought in instant recognition and that resulted in his having continuing recognition over the years. So we make a sort of claim on Lister, which we would occasionally be stupid enough to say, probably greater than the claims of Edinburgh. This is his room in the college, and you will see here the 
portrait of him, which picks up a portrait which is from Westminster Abbey. And here, most importantly of all, at the back, is his sergeant chair. This is Upton House, where Lister was born and where he was brought up, in a beautiful Queen Anne mansion. And I put this in because from the very beginning, he was exposed to medical aspects and in addition to microscopy. His father was a renowned microscopist and developed the achromatic lens and in fact got the Nobel Prize for this in 1832. So Lister was brought up to familiarize himself with the microscope. This is Lister's grave, a photograph of which I took in Hampstead. Lister's wife had died in 1893, his wife, his wife Agnes, who was incidentally the daughter of Professor Simon, who was Lister's boss in Edinburgh. And Mrs. Lister, or Lady Lister as she then was, was buried in Hampstead. When he died, there was an insistence that he be buried in Westminster Abbey and politely declined, and he lies beside his wife in Hampstead. The ceremony, of course, of the funeral service was held in Westminster Abbey, but the interment took place in Hampstead. It is said that as a child he showed an aptitude for painting and drawing, and this was manifest later in Mrs. Warren's diaries in which he's describing the birds which he'd seen on a day, out and looking for birds. And here is a magnificent drawing of a star done by a pencil. And he describes in great detail the features of the star in particular and its relationship to other birds. As a student, he had to undertake that section, and this was at University College Hospital which he attended because he was a non-conformist. And this is a dissection of a lobster. I'm not sure that this is necessarily his, but there are lots of samples of this up in the museum, and you can see the detailed dissection which is taking place, particularly illustrating the vascular system. So he was good with his pen, he was good with his paintbrushes, and he was already developing an interest in microscopy. So the stage was being set for a morbid anatomical career. This is the chronology, and it's really useful, I think, to go through it. Uh, I don't think I've seen this kind of slide before in the deliberations of this uh, conference. He was born in Upton in Essex, and then he spent his student time at University College Hospital in London. Proceeded to become an MB in 1852, and was made a fellow of this college in the same year. I do not know what criteria were applied at that time to apply to the fellowship of the Royal College of Sciences. Perhaps one of you can tell me. Then he went to Edinburgh, and this was an accident. Sharpley, who was a professor of physiology at UCH, was a Scot from Montrose, and naturally he thought there was nothing better to do than to refer one of his brightest students to what he thought was the seat of <coughs> learning at that time to Edinburgh. 
to stay, list them back to Edinburgh. It was initially meant to be just for a term. But an accident again happened. One of the, one of the doctors, earmarked to come and take one of the house jobs, died at the end of the year. And Syme asked Lister, would you continue for another term? He was pleased to do that. And then another accident happened. Presumptive appointment to a lectureship in Edinburgh. He was killed in the Crimean War. Lister was on site and he was appointed as a lecturer in surgery to Professor Sime in 1854. It was said to be a very entertaining lecture, but I'm not sure if a lecture which went on for three hours and was followed by an hour's discussion, I'm not sure I would regard that necessarily as an entertaining lecture. But there was no doubt, however, that his students thought extremely highly of and you'll see examples of that later. He was itchy to get on, very ambitious, and he applied for the chair in Glasgow in 1860. He was appointed. His time in Glasgow was not a happy one. He was, there were seven candidates for the chair, five from Glasgow and two from Edinburgh. And the Glasgow Herald questioned the wisdom of the university in appointing one of the Edinburgh appointees. <coughs> he then worked in what were insalubrious conditions in the Glasgow Royal Infirmary. And you've seen pictures of him. Professor McGrath has told me under this. You've seen illustrations of this from Professor McGrath. When Mr. left Edinburgh to come back to London, he wrote in the local paper that these are the most insalubrious wards in the kingdom. Naturally, this did not ingratiate himself to his colleagues in Glasgow or to the university. And during his term in Glasgow, <coughs> in fact, he incurred the wrath of the hospital management, and he had to wait for a year as a thing pointed to become a surgeon before he was given a clinical appointment. He worked long hours and this working day roughly comprised going to bed at 10.30, setting the fire, a piece of bread to be toasted, and he got up at 4.30 during the night and did three hours work and he whipped his fire and then he poured himself a cup of coffee. He then went into the hospital and did his work there with Simon as a surgeon and Simon was operating in the mornings and in the afternoon, Lister spent on his own, looking at specimens which had been recepted in, in the morning. And these formed the basis of the descriptions which you will shortly see. After a period in Glasgow, he came back to Edinburgh and stayed there until 1877, at which point he applied for the chair of the kings. During his time in Glasgow, he had already made two applications, one within four years of being appointed to Glasgow, and one about six years after being appointed to Glasgow. And this, I think, is an indication that he was not a happy guy.
Then he transferred to London in 1877 and was the Professor of Clinical Surgery at King's until 1900 and he died in 1912. Now in his lectures to the students, he clearly aroused their interests. And his lectures, as the students say, he taught us more pathology than surgery. And then in this introductory lecture to the new students in Edinburgh in November 1855, he speaks about the pathologies of surgery, peculiar attraction from the circumstances of the accessible position of the parts affected, enable you to watch during life the progression of disease in a manner denied to the physician. As a general rule, surgical pathology has more practical character than medical pathology. Clearly was a strong-minded view on the value of pathology as far as the surgeon was concerned. And then addressed to the Royal Society in the June of 1857, he speaks about the need for the beacon light of correct pathology to enable us to steer a safe course amid various conflicting opinions which assail us. He was talking like pathologists would. Now the work which we're going to look at in part comprises illustrations, painted illustrations, but in addition, he used the camera lucida to illustrate certain cases and in particular cytology. It's important to remember that at this point, pathology was just beginning. Morbid anatomy, of course, was well known. Autopsies for 300 years have illustrated various aspects of morbid anatomy, but not of the histological details. The, 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 Commencement of histological studies arose from the use by physiologists in which they injected carmine, carmine colored material to outline the vessels. As I'm shrewd surgeons noted, physiologists noted that the dye sometimes leached out of the vessels, and in addition, they noted the carmine stained nucleus. And from that arose an interest in cytological details. And the later development of hematoxylin, eosin, that postdated what we're going to see. So he was not a cytologist. He, he was a cytologist, he was not a histopathologist. This is the camera lucida which was used for illustrating this material. Here's the subject, here's the drawer, and he's got one eye on the subject and another eye on the paper on which he's going to illustrate. Here's the, the optics of it, if anyone wants it, I'm prepared to give you a copy. I'm not going with it. But here is the subject here, and he is the listed did that. He draws out the outline either of the cell or of a tissue. During his time as a house officer at University College, he undertook studies with Professor Sharpie and they took sections of skull, which they then wound round a piece of deal, wound it up, and then used a very sharp razor to cut the tissue, or cut the sections, and then they laid out the tissue, and here is a section of skull prepared in this way. And the drawing is with a camera lucida, and this represents the work. 
explicitly introduced, and you can see the marvelous detail which was possible with these unstained sections. And he published two or three papers in the journal General Microscopy. Now to look at some cases. This is the first one. Spot the diagnosis. Any dermatologists? This is an example of psoriasis. And there is a list of signature permanent discord. And you can see the magnificent illustration of the disorder which occurs in psoriasis. You can see the plaques, you can see the erythematous areas between areas between the plaque, and you can see the extension of this all down the forearm. Magnificent. Here is another dermatological preparation. And I have to resort to my notes because I can never tell you what this is. And it may be there are some offers from the audience about this one. No? I can't. Sorry? Correct. Splendid. Very impressed. This is, in fact, bullus ichthyosiform erythrodema. And this is what's shown here. You can see the dark illustrations of the, the skin, particularly accentuated over the elbow, and not so, not so prevalent further down the limb. This one, scurvy. Classical picture of scurvy, erythematous area, ecchymosis round about it, and then away from the actual region, there is the keratosis of the follicles illustrated here. Marvelous detail. <coughs> a resection specimen of a melanoma. Here is the resection specimen here. You can see the black staining of the tumor, and here is the tumor underneath the epidermis. And there is a Clearance. Is Professor McArthur here? Would that be adequate to clearance, do you think? Not sure. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Sorry? You need to go back and do a bit more. <laughs> a bit more measure. <laughs> <coughs> then he cuts the tumour through and you see the tumour all fast. And there are detailed descriptions of this lesion. And he draws attention to the fact that the tumour is lobulated. It indicates that there is a varying intensity of pigmentation in the, in the, in within the lobules. And then there is a cytological addition to this. Now these cytological preparations were made from touch preparations. In a slide, you touch the face of the tumor, and then these were looked at in water, sometimes with the addition of acetic acid. And we see here a cell in which it shows the extensive amount of pigmentation which was present in some of the cells. And then other cells do not contain such large amounts of pigment, but you can see the nuclei and you can see the nuclei. A budding cytologist. Excuse me again. Here is a mastectomy specimen from a woman of 42 in which the tumour had grown approximately 
three or four years before it was resected. And these clinical details written out here in extension. He did this writing himself, Homer in the afternoons, but it is a certain that probably his wife Agnes was also responsible for writing some of this. He received a tumor here, and he draws attention to the fact the most superficial part of it is pale staining, is soft, and is almost certainly an encephalite part of the tumor. Then there is an area here in which it is quite hemorrhagic. And again, he has made touch preparations for the tumor. Here's a high power view, and you can see the tumor here, well demarcated. He comments on the fact that it is pushing the skin, so presumably there were peau de range in this patient. And then again, he describes the microscopic appearances. And then he's got various examples of the cytological sections of cytological details. And they're varied. There are some unilucleate, some multinucleate, and there are some which are varying shape, heterogeneity of cancer cytology. A 22-year-old girl in whom this tumor had grown fairly rapidly over a period of four months. Again, you see the clinical details written out, and it describes this tumor. It indicates that it's extending up to the skin, it extended down to the clavicle here, and medially, it got to the end of the clavicle. You see that in the high power view. Here's the tumor, here's the clavicle, here is the, what I think, later on, is an aneurysmal bone cyst, or it could be an angioformative osteosarcoma. But the fact that the tumor is well circumscribed does not completely destroy the bone, erodes it, suggests that it's not an osteosarcoma. And this would be an unusual site in any event. And then he described the appearances of these cystic lesions within the tumor, some of which are solid, some of which are empty, but contain blood remnants. And this is a magnificent illustration of this, done by him. And again, cytological details, cells like this, which are fusiform, and cells like this, which are multinucleate, and comments. Multinucleate cells such as this are common in many malignant tumors. I do not know what became of this patient. In fact, the follow-up details are lacking in many of these cases, and that's rather a pity. This is a hyper view of one group of cells which are rather fusible in their appearance, and then is a hyper view of one of these multinucleate cells. I think there's exquisite detail in the features of this cell and the details which he illustrates in respect of the nucleus and the nucleus. He'd have been a superb histopathologist. A lesion from the tongue. The tongue here, and then this tumor, which had been growing for a period of five or six months. And the tumor has been resected. You can see here, 
So loculated appearance of it, tetrarchy, it has to be a squamous cell carcinoma. And a reading of it, and that the microscopic appearance is in keeping with that. And again, he describes how easy it was to nucleate this, albeit there was some extension of it into the floor of the body. And this is an illustration of this. Then soft tissue tumors. This is a lesion from a 45-year-old lady. And this had been growing the inner aspect of her thigh. And it had been present for three or four years, and therefore clearly slowly, slow growing. And then he comments on the variegated appearance of the cut surface of the tumor. Areas which are hemorrhagic, areas which are yellow, and areas which are pale. And this clearly manifests the features of what this tumor would be, some kind of sarcoma, and you're seeing a heterogeneity in terms of portions, in terms of the, of the tumor itself. Here's a high part view of this. Marvelous, I think, for someone to be able to sit down, take the specimen which had been removed that morning, spend time sitting in the afternoon and drawing this illustration on. Here's another soft tissue tumor, again the account. And then in this one, there are more details in terms of the cytology. Here is the cut surface of this tumor, it's rather colloid in its appearance. And it's certainly a soft tissue tumor, and as to its precise histogenesis, I wouldn't dare suggest. These are the kind of accounts which accompany these, and you can see a whole page. This relates to the tumor of the thigh, which I illustrated to you. Very, very detailed, very difficult to read. And it's a pity that we haven't got someone who's able to sit down on these and write the accompanying microscopic description of the tumor of which you have resected. It must clearly be very observant. It commented on the variation in appearance of different parts of the tumor. The fact that in some tumors there was a lot of fibrous tissue, as he said, separating the more epithelial of parts of the tumor, like theoretic parts of the tumor. Marvelous account. Clearly, I plenty of time. We don't have time to make such microscopic descriptions of tumor resection specimens anymore. In a few hours, this one's got no signature to it, but it's clearly, I suggest, an osteosarcoma of the femur in a young person. And you can see the variegated appearance of the tumor, and then here is the head of the femur. Hydrocyte, which is removed, and there's an accompanying account of the appearances of this hydrocyte. Here is the portions where it's coming through the neck. This is the testis in here, and this is the hydrocyte up here. And it describes the various parts of it part from the hydrocele, part from the neck, and then part from the underlying testis. Marvelous that a simple specimen such as this merited the kind of detailed account which this provides. And he's clearly making marvelous observations of these lesions which he removed 
clearly have been an enthusiast, has to be an enthusiast for pyramids. And of course, these were then used to, be built to, to, to show to the students, and they used them to provide his lectures in pathology. This clearly has to be a post-mortem specimen, but here we see the lower end of the spine, here at the vertebrae, and the lesions here. It's either a metastatic tumor or a tuberculosis. I venture to suggest tuberculosis. The vertebrae has been destroyed. There's all this material line between that, and there's some collapse of the spinal cord. There is no detailed description of this, so I'm just surmising what it is. Excuse me. Then there are some carbon illustrations of some of the lesions which we did. Sorry? Oh, five minutes. This is a a gunshot lesion. There's the point of entry, there's the point of exit. Then with this probably hygroma of the hand. And then this lesion, which I thought might have been rising from thyroid, but my dermatologist, my thyroid biologist told me no, it can't be, it's not quite central. It almost certainly is some kind of branchial. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad there's a group of fellows in the audience. A branchial system. What fascinates me is the detail which he has applied to the patient, as distinct from the lesion which is illustrated. Beautiful. Trace, beautiful decor, marvelous. And then finally the cytological bits. And there are large amounts of cytological illustrations. And you can see that one cell like this, and it comments on the fact that there are three nuclear lines. This is a hair follicle. You can see the hair shaft here. Here's the surrounding of the pitchian layers of the skin. And again, he describes these in great detail. Here are other examples of sections which were given entirely to cytology without any microscopic accompanying illustration. We should show here the details of these cells and his comment, 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 comments on the variation which the cells are showing. Here are some more. And then this exquisite illustration of a mitotic figure. You can see here the cells are divided. Here are the, here's the divided nucleus. Also note there is a lot of illustration of what is present in this cytoplasm. I think this is marvelous. Later in life, this was a lecture in 1897, by which time there had been major advances in histology with the development of fixing of embedding techniques and the development of appropriate stains. And this is in a lecture given. Queen's College in Belfast, who was celebrating the, the college's jubilee, and it indicates he is aware of the increasing complexity in examining pathological specimens, section cutting, staining, microscopic examination. You can see 
Basic methodology emerged as a discipline in its own right. These are those who have helped me in this study and notably input from a museum staff at this college. And then Dr. Robin Reed, who advised an aging professor of what the precise diagnosis might be. Thank you very much.
contribution on the achromatic lens, which is mm. a very understated thing. It's hard. He did it jointly with Hodgkin, who uh, got, I think, was, I, I mean, although he was a physician, I think he was also, we would now call a pathologist as well. What's people who have Whether there was a listener. <laughs> <laughs> okay, any more questions? Okay, well, we'll stop there. Um, thank you very much. Okay, we we'll see we seem to have an effective um, PowerPoint, so I'm not sure. Um, I'll just introduce our next speaker. Um, our next speaker is Ruth Richardson. Uh, or is it Sam Albert? <laughs> Our next speaker is, 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 is Bruce Richardson, um, who is very well known in the history of medicine for her um, heartbreaking work on the Anatomy Acts. Um, and most recently, I could talk about a lot of what she's done, but she's particularly well known recently um, for her book on Grey's Anatomy, and very recently for her work on Dickens and the Workhouse. And, not, not, not just the academic work there, but also the campaigning that she's been involved in there, which seems to be having some success, we hope, fingers crossed. Um, Ruth is going to talk on fermentation as a metaphor. This is Joseph Lister's inaugural lecture at King's in 1877. Um, Rickman Godley's um, Rickman Godley is memorialised at the top of this bar of um, names at the side, and of course Rickman Godley was um, Lister's nephew and his finest, I think, best biographer. Really fine biography, that Rickman Godley biography. Um, okay, so this is a. This is list of roughly about the age that he was when he came to King's College London in 1877. And that's the focus of my talk today, is about his inaugural lecture. I'm just focusing down on one lecture because it's so interesting. Um, he was appointed Professor of Clinical Surgery at King's in 1877 when he was 50, and he had a brilliant career already behind him. Regis Professor of Surgery at Glasgow and Professor of Clinical Surgery at Edinburgh. For at least the previous decade, he'd been a controversial figure in um, British surgery, especially after 1867 with the Lancet paper on um, uh, antiseptic surgery. It, was a, it wasn't just one article, it was a series of articles that came out over several months and um, that described his new method, antiseptic method, of treating compound fractures, which previously would have been counted as mortal injuries and dangerous operations to become involved with. Um, and in 1871, Lister was chosen to operate on Queen Victoria, who had an abscess under her arm. And that's, it wasn't just because he was in Scotland at the time and named as, as uh, Queen Surgeon in Scotland. I think it was also because it was recognized that his work was very safe. And that means in important places, he was known to be a safe operator, safe and careful operator. 
for several years, his, his ideas concerning antisepsis and surgery had implement, been implemented elsewhere with very good results. And on a recent trip to, to Germany, 1876, he was greeted with enormous public um, audit in, in Germany, much better than in, in this country. So it was, it was, he, was, he was known internationally before he became uh, professor at King's. Now we've heard that he was a Londoner by birth, this is his father, the microscopist, extremely interested in important man in his own right, Joseph Jackson Lister. Um, and of course, the younger Lister is a second stage rocket. You know, he's, he's set on his trajectory by his dad and by his knowledge of, of microscopy. Um, his dad was a wine merchant by trade, but of that school of amateur, amateur scientists who were good enough to be made a fellow of the Royal Society. A very special man, and he also wrote, apart from the uh, article on the lens we've heard about, he also wrote taxonomic work on crustacea, on small um, sea creatures. As a young man, Lister attended the University of London, and then at Edinburgh, we've heard about these biographical details, fell in love with Joseph Syme's daughter. This is their wedding photo, which is in the welcome collection. That's a, as far as, as close up as I could get. Um, and in 1856, they were married. Their long, productive partnership lasted until her death. Many of his surviving documents, including most of his lab notes, are in her handwriting. And I'd not be surprised if some of the pictures were by her too. I mean, drawing and painting was often a female um, accomplishment as well. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if some of them were hers but she, she didn't sign much. You just have to go by the handwriting. Um, she was in the manuensis, but she was also editor. He mentions that she was often very good about suggesting new sentences or changes to his terminology and his, his linguistic uh, output. So there's, there's more input from her than we know. Uh, it's a, I feel it's like Pierre and Marie Curie, personally. I think she was quite important in the lab as well. But there's, it's so hard to prove these things. Um, but you do get a sense of her in some of the experiments. Now, ever since the early days of his long training as a surgeon, Lister has been greatly exercised by the unpredictability of patient outcomes after surgery. However successful an operation might have been, it was a matter of chance whether the patient would become infected and die. Um, and it, it must have been terribly upsetting for somebody like Lister. He's a sensitive soul. He, he might have had a, an acid tongue, but he was a sensitive soul. And it must have been really awful to do good operations on patients who you wanted to help and to lose so many. I mean, this was happening to all surgeons at the time. Uh, someone with his earnest temperament, I think, would have been upset by it, and also the way he starts to try and stop it happening shows that he, he wants to save lives. And because of his training under his dad, he was sympathetic to the idea of the teeming life of the very small, and his intellectual life is characterized by a growing preoccupation with inflammation, suppuration, and then fermentation. Microorganisms and their activities become a constant counterpoint his daily work on the wards. The appointment as professor at King's was a significant moment for Lister, both personally and professionally. 
Personally, if Angie had to leave his home of 20 years, <coughs> in Agnes's hometown of Edinburgh, and move back closer to London, to his own roots, could somebody... Oh, is there water here? I'll get you. No, it's okay. Okay. <coughs> it might be this perspex. There's something, something that's very dry around here. Um, professionally, it set him on a course which his younger acolytes seem to have regarded as a crusade to persuade the London surgical establishment to adopt antisepsis. Now, I found this view of the strand, which is round about the right date. And you can see St Mary's Strand. It's looking towards Trafalgar Square. And this is the, the bottom end of Wych Street, with all, which was all swept away at the time of the orb, which was built in the early 20th century. Um, he was recruited to King's College. He didn't apply for the job. He was invited to John King's after the death of the previous professor of clinical surgery, William Ferguson. At first, the college had done the time-honoured thing of promoting an internal candidate. This was the way jobs were filled. You, you put the next person down up into the bigger job. <coughs> so the, the clinical surgery job was filled, and the lower roles were filled up by people further down the ladder. But a very strong feeling pervaded in the medical, medical faculty at King's that Mr. should be invited to fill the vacant teaching chair in surgery. They recommended this to the College Council, and the Medical Appointments Committee endorsed this recommendation and submitted a memorial signed by the entire medical staff of King's, <coughs> with the exception of the surgeons and the assistant surgeons, <laughs> and quote, one unimportant professor. I don't know who that was, one unimportant professor. So instead of advertising, Approaches were made to Lister, and he was at first reluctant, as you heard. But there was a bit of horse trading before he finally agreed to come down, <coughs> and he was appointed to the new post in 1877 to a new post created for him, which was a second professorship in clinical surgery. He didn't want to teach surgery, um, he wanted to teach clinical surgery. He didn't want to do theory, he wanted to do practice. And he was allowed to bring his own surgical team from Edinburgh, and on his insistence, a new fee structure was organised to encourage students' attendance. He felt that the way things were organised, it meant that students paid and then cleared off and didn't come to the lectures. And he wanted an incentive for the students to attend. So he, um, he gives his inaugural in 1877, the 1st of October, opening of the medical term. Now the period that, he's, that we're looking at, the 1870s, were astonishing and controversial years in the development of bacteriological understanding. Following Pasteur's discovery of biological causes of fermentation a decade or so earlier, numbers of independent researchers began confronting what were now at last understood not to be chemical reactions, but living entities. And that was the meaning of the word germ, that it was a living entity, like the germ of a seed. And that's what the argument was initially about, was whether these things were caused by living creatures or not. And people were beginning to seek specific causes of specific diseases at this time. In Norway, Arnold Hansen identified the causative organism of leprosy. Um, in Silesia, in Poland, Ferdinand Cohen um, developed a taxonomy of microorganisms and named three bacteria. 
1876, the year before Lister's lecture, John Tyndall brilliantly confirmed Pasteur's demolition of prevailing arguments in favour of spontaneous generation, which means things appear out of nowhere, or the body manufactures them itself. By demonstrating to audiences of over a thousand at London's Royal Institution that aerial dust carried living particles. Tyndall announced, life has never been proved to appear independently of antecedent life. So it, came, it didn't come from nowhere, it came from parents. <laughs> uh, and this, this was absolutely, it was, it was not new, but it was proven in the UK by Tyndall and, and others. <coughs> Lister's early ideas about sepsis had developed a pace since his introduction in the mid-1860s to the, the Louis Pasteur work on fermentation. And I think at that stage, he wasn't reading chemistry. He didn't realize that chemistry and what he was looking at in wounds would overlap. And of course, it's Pasteur who makes the real change. He realizes that it's not, that, that, that uh, fermentation is not just a chemical thing, it's a live organism that's causing it. And since Lister's um, exposure to Pasteur, he had been conducting careful clinical experiments on the prevention of sepsis in wounds and surgical incisions. And before he came to King's, he published a whole string of important papers. Uh, this is just, uh, this is, these are the most important ones, but there are several others too. Inflammation, anaesthetics, amputation, blood coagulation, compound fractures, abscesses, antisepsis, antiseptic ligatures, hospital infections, antiseptic surgery, antiseptic wound care. Now he could have talked on any of those subjects, or all of them, he could have done a general lecture um, about his own successes and of all the other people who, of whom he knew, but he decided not to. He spoke at length instead about the process of fermentation. And this is the BMJ coverage, it shows how quickly they turned it round. Um, and he talked about the process of fermentation, not in the human body, but in wine, blood, and milk. He invited his audience at the Great Hall to join him in a, in a process of investigation. So he narrated, effectively, he narrated his own process of investigation, rooted in common knowledge that surgery and childbirth were often accompanied by terrible deaths of unknown cause. His story was simply told in language that allowed everyone present to follow his reasoning and to understand the requirements of technique and thought along his, his path of discovery. His lecture involved them in a narrative elucidated in the course of a gradual but persistent effort involving puzzlement, careful experiment, logical inference, statistical analysis, and dawning understanding. It's a long lecture, this lecture. And it's fantastically interesting because it gives you his thought process all the way through towards new and valuable knowledge to which they all would be party by the end of his talk. Now we're very fortunate in having three versions of what Lister said. Um, there's the British Medical Journal um, version here, which was turned around within a week. There's another one that he corrected, which he published um, in the Quarterly Journal of Microscopical Science the following April it comes out. But best of all, from my point of view, there survives upstairs in the archives here the transcripts, the transcript of Lister's words as they were actually delivered, taken down word for word by a shorthand writer who sat in the Great Hall at King's and then later transcribed from his own, his or her, I think it's probably male at that stage, um, shorthand into legible script. 
and the longhand script is upstairs. <coughs> the manuscript version may well have served as the basis for the other two because there are corrections on it. And Lister seems to have lectured extemporary elsewhere. This isn't the only case it happened. He lectured without notes and then later worked on the uh, shorthand version for his own record. I think he just felt freer speaking, but if it's a straight uh, recording of what he said, he's so beautifully spoken, it doesn't need very much correction. Quite interesting, if, it's, if, it's, if it was completely without notes. But I much prefer this manuscript version for two reasons. First of all, I love manuscripts. <laughs> um, I love the immediacy which the handwriting gives you. Um, it was created by somebody who actually heard this speak, who was present in the room, sitting there, listening very carefully, because if you're doing sh shorthand from somebody, you have to listen hard for meaning. Um, and paying attention to Lister's performance and its reception in the hall. Secondly, because the manuscript has things in it which the other versions lack. Although it has hand emendations by Lister, this manuscript hasn't been sanitized as the print versions have. There's a couple of places where the shorthand writer, for example, who's from a company called Walsh and Sons in Parliament Street, um, has left gaps. Oh no. It's a test. Oh good. Okay. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, uh, sorry, I lost myself there. Um, so there's a couple of places where the shorthand writer left gaps for, for technical words that he couldn't get and they've been filled in, for example. Um, but also, um, what's really delightful is that there's, there's other things too. There's a moment, for example, where Lister apparently became aware of restiveness in his audience. <clears throat> and he says, I'm sorry I should, that anything I should say should seem in any way wearisome to any gentleman here. If it is so, I would only beg him for the sake of others who seem to have some interest in what's going on to refrain from giving evidence of his Very diplomatic, very diplomatic. And that's missing from the other two transcripts that we've got. You know, it's things like this that you find in manuscripts when you do the work. Um, it helps us understand the breadth of audience that was in the hall at the Great Hall at King's. So there were people that were great and the good from the college, and there were probably colleagues from the Royal Society and Pathological Society, and people that knew Lister, <coughs> people who were curious about him, but also numbers of others who, apart from the students, who had come along expecting a clinical lecture from a great clinician, and who couldn't really fathom <coughs> why this new professor of clinical surgery should be intent upon telling them all about fermenting liquids, putrefaction, and milking cows. For me, the best thing, oops, sorry, sorry. The best thing about the transcript is that none of the applause has been edited out. So there's uh, these are three instances. <coughs> you can see the scrubbings out, but behind each one it says applause. And, and you can see Lister's wish for it not to be recorded. Um, not just with a straight line, but with really emphatic zigzag or scramblings, uh, scrambling deletions. Reading behind these deletions grants us awareness that Lister had considerable support in the hall. He was applauded repeatedly. The audience reaction is evident almost from the outset when Lister said that he pondered what to talk about, whether he should address the beneficent calling to which students were being uh, uh, joined in, but he decided to do something as a special subject, and that was when he was applauded. He says, in the hope 
that I might have something to say of interest, and if possible, even instruction, not only for the student, but also for the eminent men, I don't think I've got this quote, no, I haven't, the eminent men whom I have the honor to see around me. So it's this very um, latter course that he chose, and it's a substantial piece of work, this lecture. Quite long, full of data, rooted in his own researches, things he'd been doing apparently since he left Edinburgh, with increasing refinement, but it's rooted in work that took him several years. And it's found, again, upstairs in his commonplace books, you can see the work he's done. During exactly the same, the last, the previous two months are the culmination of it, but it, it's rooted in long-term research. During exactly the same time as Lister had been doing this work, in Germany, Koch was working on anthrax, and his work was published only a month after this lecture was, um, was given. Um, if you know anything about Koch, I'd like you to put it aside, <laughs> because we have to think about how momentous this talk might have been in its own time and place. That's in London in 1877, a month before Koch's work appeared elsewhere. Quite a lot can be gleaned about uh, Lister's private work because these great commonplace books survive upstairs and they're beautifully, they were beautifully rebound after his death. Um, so they're in very good condition. They're full of margin-to-margin -margin notes. I mean, just full. Um, and again, most of them are in Agnes's hand. The problem with them is that they're very badly organized internally for, for an outsider to come to use. They obviously are very personal record, taken at his own pace, and the, the um, pages are kind of filled in where, where they're not being used. So they're quite disorganized. And I think it was dependent on memory where things were. We know from Rickman Godley's fine biography that Lister often left lecture writing right up to the last minute in desperate haste, which even on the most important occasions he seemed unable to avoid. And that feels very familiar to me. <laughs> now here you can see Agnes is writing at the top and Lister's at the bottom. And it, I'm very grateful that Agnes was his amanuensis because I wouldn't be able to read his writing myself without enormous effort. You can see the difference, it's really wonderful. Um, so, uh, you know, these things are extraordinary and very informative. On many pages, there's little blank areas left in the text, and then these small drawings are put in, which are his camera lucida drawings. Um, each one is briefly dated and scaled. Um, he's very religious about that. And it, she would cut them out, I presume, and glue them in the correct position. But it's not clear who does what. But it, you know, it looks like she was doing a lot of work for him. Um, the camera lucida was a tiny, weeny prism lens, very, very small prism lens that fitted on the top of a microscope. Um, all the big microscopy uh, vendors in London sold them. And it allowed you, with the same eye that you were looking down the lens, also to see the paper that you were drawing on. You weren't using different eyes, you were using the same eye. Um, because it allowed, it split the, split the image. It hit the back of the retina. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a virtual image on the retina. So you're able to draw around the thing you were looking at, as well as see it. Uh, um, it's a very complex skill to learn, but once you've learned it, it's a knack. Uh, and not many people did master it. it. It was difficult. Some people just avoided it. Um, but at the same time, we're getting to the edge of the, what they call the limits of microscopic sight. Um, 
H.C. Uh, Zorby, who was president of the Royal Microscopical Society in 1876, talked about the limit of the powers of the microscope and the ultimate mo molecules of matter. Um, and it, it's quite clear that he's aware, being president of the society, that lenses can't get that much better, that they're working at the very edge. And so it's clear that Lister is working at the edge of capability of both microscope and prism, drawing the smallest possible structures in as much detail as he could. Uh, this is Sorby, and almost, he talks about the theory of invisible germs. An almost endless variety of germs might exist, each having a distinct structural character, and yet each so small that there is no possibility about, no probability about ever being able to see them, even at indefinite points. And that's what it was like in 1876. So on top of his daily clinical responsibilities as a pioneering surgeon and so on in these major institutions, it's clear this is also an indefatigable and committed scientist. These great notebooks span the years when he developed his own scientific method by trial and error, making his own transition from concerned doctor and microscopist to world-class bacteriologist. By, mo by modern standards, the process is, of course, complete, incomplete, because we know so much more now. But in his own day, he was right at the very front of things in the UK. Um, we have to suspend our own knowledge, not just of what we've seen ourselves visually in our, in our culture and, our, and our, whatever other scientific knowledge is in this room, but also simple things like science labs in schools. He's working, doing little tiny wee drawings like this, from, and he's using liqueur glasses because it's before the days of the petri dish. Okay, He's using domestic equipment to culture all kinds of things um, and to observe all kinds of things. Our distance, this is, this, the, I'm trying to show how far we are from, we've got, just got to try and put ourselves back to the 1870s to see where he was and how far we have come since then. He began the lecture by talking about uh, fundamentals because he's key, his key um, message for this lecture is to try and get the audience to understand the importance of fermentation to infection in the human body. And he does start out saying that, but he goes away from the clinical use of it pretty damn quick. And he then talks about the wine harvest in Italy and how he'd witnessed a couple of weeks before the collection of the harvest and he'd been told by people about the wine in the vats boiling over the top of the vats from the reaction going on inside the, um, these great wine vats in Italy. And he mentions Pasteur's finding that yeast lived on the skin of the grape, and that the berry, he says, the berry is not, have I put that up? No. Um, um, he says that the, the fermentation doesn't start until the berry is pierced. That the wine doesn't work unless you've trodden on the grapes. And it's the mixture of the yeast and the grape that makes the wine. So he goes on from that, saying it's not a chemical reaction, but a living process of self-multiplication. And that's how he defines ferment, that it's self-multiplicatory. And applause goes out in the hall when he says he's going to address the matter of whether these things are mere accidental, concomitant things in the, in the body, or if they really are the cause of the ferment in, in the in wounds. 
whether they're associated or unimportant attendants. Um, and he shows with an array of props and posters in the hall, he demonstrates that a linked link chain of experiments that he had undertaken to prove that blood does not putrefy nor milk curdle without the activity of bacteria. He prepares the way by showing a flask of Pasteur's solution, which Pasteur had devised as a special um, food for bacteria and yeast to grow, uh, which remained pure after boiling for a month because it had been protected from the dust of the air. Then he moves on to blood, the putrefaction of which he says was a change fully as striking as that which, su which sugar undergoes in the fermentation of wine. He's, he's leaning towards showing how biological organisms can create a chemical reaction, can, can generate chemicals in, in wine and in blood. And this one he had collected from the jugular vein of an ox, the blood he collected from the jugular vein of an ox in the heat-treated and dust-protected container, so he's sterilizing absolutely everything as well as he could. And they're collected six weeks previously when he was in Edinburgh. So these are Edinburgh specimens being shown in London. Um, and he showed that the clot in the blood, it had, recorded, but it had neither contracted nor putrefied. And um, he, he says that if you leave blood to stand, and people would have known this, anybody would have known this, that blood allowed to stand becomes foul, acrid, and poisonous. Whereas the air under the glass cap in this case, in the blood case, was perfectly sweet, perfectly free from odour. Now, odour is one of these things, it, it, he records it in all the experiments. Um, he, he regularly notices and says what they, what things smell about, smell of, and I think for him it was terribly important for him to say it in, the, in front of an audience at King's College, because the stink of the surgical wards at King's was noticeable by his, his staff. They record that the, that the surgical wards stank at King's, whereas this was wards in Edinburgh and was sweet, and they had been for years because of antisepsis. And I think the smell was one of the most important diagnostic signs about whether you were in an antiseptic ward or not. He doesn't say it, he doesn't draw attention to it, but it's there in the lecture, and it's, the lecture is like this. It, there's a lot of messages coming out in, underneath the text. The uncorrupted nature of these um, blood samples would have surprised most of the medical men in the hall. They're six weeks old. Uh, he drew attention to the fact that they had been exposed to oxygen, and he shows how uh, the colour had changed, and it's clearly oxidisation inside the, the glass. So it isn't oxygen that's causing the putrefaction at all. Um, and it's also not other things inside the blood. And he says that if you put on the end of a needle a bit of putrefying blood and add it to this purified blood, it will putrefy within days. Um, and that also is clear that he's talking about blood poisoning and the days it takes to kill a person who gets sepsis. He describes the rod-like bacteria with a remarkable power of locomotion that he found developing paripassus in parallel, in correlation with the process of putrefaction in blood. So he's adverting to a controversy which had occupied a great many minds, and in England it's a, it's a terrible, in Britain it's a terrible diversion. In many ways, it's a good diversion, but it diverts people from really studying germs for about, it's about a decade, of this debate about spontaneous generation. In Germany, there was another argument, um, I can't remember the name of it now, different debate in Germany. 
But again, they, they had a diversion as well. Um, but whether these things were accidental or not, he says, by analogy with yeast, he wonders why on earth anyone should doubt the relationship. Because he thought, um, he, he, he thinks that the yeast is so obviously the cause of the ferment in wine and bread. Uh, he doesn't mention bread, but it's, it's obvious what he's talking about, the, the, the um, fermentation of yeasts. Um, but he thinks the small size of bacteria might contribute. And this was a poster which we've got upstairs in the archive. Uh, it's in bad condition, but you can see exactly how noticeable it is. He's showing the yeast on the far side and the different um, bacteria that he's been studying. He then moves on to look at, uh, oh, and he shows that moisture doesn't cause putrefaction in blood either. It's not water that causes it. If you put sterile water in, it doesn't cause putrefaction. Uh, Lister moves on to consider the, the phenomenon of fermentation in milk. He says he chose this fluid because it seemed more convenient for the purpose. And obviously it's a daily fluid that anybody could study. He describes the usual process of coagulation, souring, and decay. He says that Louis Pasteur had seen the organisms in milk and that Lister says that they're evidently bacterial. And then he stresses the bacterial variety that grows in milk. And he goes on to give the particular thing that he finds that he thinks causes it. He calls it bacteria lactis, bacterium lactis. Um, he says it's motionless, it, the, the, it's not rods, it's little ovals, uh, and they divide by, they, they multiply by division, transverse to the vertical axis, always found when souring was occurring, capable of thriving in milk, but unlike other bacteria, not in Pasteur's solution. He's now highlighting the differences between different bacteria. Different bacteria do different things in different, um, what he calls pabulum, the, the pabulum thing they like to rest in. And there then follows a series of experiments, including temporary setbacks and contaminations, which demonstrate that the souring of milk is not an inherent quality of milk itself, just like the putrefaction of blood is not an inherent quality of blood, but the work of this bacterium. He, he protects a, a flask of boiled milk from the air, and he shows it liquid and sweet after a month. It, and he shows it's not spontaneously prone to souring. Contrary to existing theories, it was neither casein in the milk nor oxygen exposure, which caused the fermentation. And he says it requires something external, something to be introduced from without. He explains that if a series of receptacles of this kind of milk, fresh milk, freshly boiled, was injected with uh, and cooled, uh, was injected with a drop of ordinary water, it would develop a whole series of organisms. And he, there's another poster, that's a, a lovely picture of a cow being milked, which we'll come to. He shows these, this is another poster. These are the things that would grow in milk if there's no bacteria lactis. And it isn't that he's taken the bacterium lactis out, it's because it's, a, it's not a common bacterium. It's found in dairies very commonly, but it's not found out in, in fields and orchards or anywhere else. And he did experiments in different places to try and get bacterium lactis in the environment and couldn't find it. But he shows all these other things that are growing. Of course, he can't identify them all, but he thinks they're all likely to be new bacteria because there's hardly any bacteria being identified at this date. Um, 
So, and he also points out that if you put a needle's point of souring milk in his clean uh, milk, it would have soured within hours, probably. It would, it would convert in a gallon into a sour clot in two or three days. So it's very, the parallel with blood and milk is very clear. Um, some contemporaries, he says, might argue that boiling the milk had changed its quality in some way. So then he starts working on fresh milk, and that was why I brought you the uh, picture of the cowhouse. He goes directly to the cowhouse and has the milk taken direct from the cow's udder when the milk, the dairy woman has washed her hands and the udder's been cleaned with new milk. And he, he um, cultivates the, he keeps these things in jars and brings them to London and shows them in the hall. There were 10 of them, I think, and five, um, uh, all of them but two had developed different bacteria, but two of them were perfectly sweet. And he believed that showed that, uh, that, that it had pure um, bacterium lactis, uh, uh, that the bacterium lactis was missing from the um, from these sweet milk versions. He says, how are we to explain these, these um, strange uh, appearances? And he says, if the bacterium lactis had been present, it would have made them un inhospitable to other bacteria. Uh, and that is really his point, is that there's lots of bacteria about, but bacterium lactis would have killed them off because it makes acid in the, in the milk. Um, and he shows that both water and air carry contaminants, potential contaminants of milk. But he then shows uh, pure milk, which the, the milk that was not um, um, contaminated with any bacteria. And he then does an, a new experiment, which I don't think anybody had done before. It's, it's ascribed to him by later workers, which is that when he gets the pure bacterium lactis, he dilutes it with, uh, with, boiling, with boiled water with one part per million, and he calculates how this should be done. He counts how many bacteria there are. Uh, up here, I love this because it names the cow, the cow is called Blackie. And these are his test tubes. He made these little glass rods and things to hold his test tubes vertically. You can see how rudimentary the equipment is, but it does, it serves the purpose. And here's his little boring of bacteria and lactis. He dilutes the pure, um, the pure culture which he's obtained um, with a million parts per water. This is, this is one way he's done it with 1,200, but he does it with a million later on. And that works out one bacterium per drop of water. And the drop is a particular size of drop that fits under his microscope. And he had measured how many bacteria appeared under, the, under his lens in his microscope and computed how many, uh, the dilution process that he needed to do in order to get one bacterium per drop. And with pure milk, he then adds the bacterium to the, to the, um, the, the milk and it grows bacterium lactis, absolutely pure, um, uh, what do you call it, a pure culture. And then he works from that culture to make other cultures. So he's, he's, he's fulfilling Koch's postulates before Koch 
had written them down. Cox doesn't do it till the 1880s. But uh, Lister is doing it for milk bacteria at this early stage, 1877. And it was at that point that he um, feels the sense of the, re the restiveness in the audience. You can see at these calculations, you can see all these zeros and things he's put in here, these are his calculations, in August of that summer. And this is a blow-up of his tiny drawing of Lactis, as it, as, it, as it was in heat, and it's still named as that in the International Bacteriological uh, Books of Nomenclature. It's called Lactobacillus Lactis. I, I won't be too much longer. How long have I got? Five minutes. Okay, how many? Two. Two, all right. Um, so he, he confirmed that the new growth was Bacterium Lactis, um, having grown it, um, and that came from his, what he thought was a pure culture. So he, he's done all the Cox postulates, and he shows that it can't possibly be a solution, because otherwise it would have been in all the test tubes, whereas in fact it wasn't in all of them. There, there were several that it didn't appear. Um, so it would have occurred evenly throughout the mass. He preempted the argument that someone might make that the bacterium was an accidental concomitant of the real ferment with a wonderful argument, which is basically statistical. He says, it's inconceivable that these two accidentally associated things should be present in the same number. So an unknown kind of cause of ferment plus a bacterium that they should be accidentally in, a, in exactly the same numbers. And this is where the dilution is terribly important. Um, and he says it's doubly inconceivable because it, how could it, it be where there was a fermentation particle, there was also a bacterium, and where there was a bacterium, there was also a fermentation particle. He shows it's absolutely absurd. I say it would again be inconceivable that they should accompany each, each other in pairs. Um, and he says each inconceivability would have been sufficient to show there was no other explanation for the action that, than the action of the bacteria for the fermentation of milk. And he also concludes from his, these experiments that the, the lactis bacterium has no spores. And he does that by saying that had spores been present, the effect would have been proportionately greater than it actually was in, in the result of the experiment. Um, we should have had the effect more than in proportion to those bacteria we have. So it's quite clear he knows that this thing divides on its own. And he basically says there are no germs, that this thing is a reproductive entity in itself. It's not actually a germ. And I think that's why he uses the term later on, he talks about microorganisms instead of germs, because these are not germs. They're not, uh, they're not spores. Um, he wound up by saying, asking the audience to ponder seriously everything he said, and he hoped they'd agree with his conclusion. And he saw it as a step um, on the way to removing this important but most difficult question from the region of vague speculation and loose statement into the domain of precise and definite knowledge. And here on the manuscript it says, Professor Lister resumed his seat amid loud applause. Um, now, I, I, this is the end of the main, my main report about this, this lecture, but I've got one more page, which is to, to say, I'm a historian, not a microbiologist, and I'm intrigued as to why the fact that Lister did this extraordinary work isn't better known. 
why the isolation of this bacterium, which causes milk to sour, seems to have gone so quietly and curiously under-celebrated. No one can know everything, and I don't know very much. But I'm mystified by the fact that milk, which has been souring ever since the human race domesticated the cow, had apparently not been analysed like this before Lister. And the fact that he seems to have done it so well and so intelligently is so little known. Um, he's still credited, as I said, with the lactobacillus uh, in international nomenclature. It's not named after him, but it's known that he was the one that named it. And, and in many of the story, the histories of bacteriology I found, it doesn't really talk about this indigenous bacteriologist who was doing this work in Britain. Parallel, parallel lines at the time Koch hit the headlines, and that Lister fulfilled the postulate before Koch had formulated them. Both Koch and Lister did extraordinary work, and of course they're working on completely different things. And Pasteur is very good, uh, Lister is very good about saying that he owes Pasteur a huge debt and the importance of Pasteur's work, and also advertising and publicizing Pasteur's new work on the attenuation of vaccines after this speech, elsewhere at the British Medical Association scientific meetings and elsewhere, and also Koch's work on anthrax. He, he's, he, he publicizes their work in Britain. When he talks about the small amount of corrupted blood or milk required to spread through the mass of his pure samples and putrefy the blood or the milk, it seems to me he was speaking metaphorically about the way in which a human body could be irrevocably altered by sepsis. He was presenting a post hoc justification for his life's work on antisepsis. The skin of the grape was a metaphor for human skin, the blood clot for the human body's blood, the mass of the milk for the body itself. In presenting his experiments on blood and milk at King's, Lister demonstrated to an audience of colleagues and to a new generation of students that a single bacterium might affect the transformative process of putrefaction. The tiny quantity of infected material necessary, he defined as the amount capable of being carried on the point of a needle. The import of this finding and the means by which he investigated these two theological human fluids, I believe, renders this a foundational text of world microbiology. Thank you. I want to thank you for, for that and for rescuing the transcript of that lecture um, uh, because I think that the lecture has, the view of that lecture has been overshadowed by St. Clair Thompson's account of that lecture where he was a first year medical student and he was one of those who was restless and didn't, were, and didn't want to um, listen to he, he just got bored, he didn't appreciate what he was being told and his account, which is very vivid, um, which I think has colored our view yes. of that lecture, and I think it's, it's, I think it's great that you've rescued It's marvelous to have the transcript with the applauses and to have had that transcript taken seriously. And the second point is just um, that Agnes Lister um, helped him to go to the abattoir and get the blood, and, and that comes out in those commonplace books. Yes. very, very vividly yes. that she went to the abattoir. Yes, he said an assistant. Yes, and <laughs> yes. Okay. 
Um, just one quick point. You said that he was a very good uh, lecturer, but I was at the College of Stones in Edinburgh um, at the Lister Centenary Celebration there. In the archives, there was a book um, written by his house officer. Um, it's called Lister as a Union. And it's an excellent uh, account of the daily war rounds and the daily lectures. And in that book, um, he said that Lister actually had a stammer, a very bad stammer, and was very nervous of speaking and would struggle to get through a lecture. Do you have any comments? No, not at all. I just think, you know, Marguerite, can I just comment? That method he spoke very slowly, and therefore the uh, students, it was at dictation's pace, so they could follow what he was saying very clearly. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We're going across there. I still find it very interesting that he, as he was appointed as a professor of clinical surgery, as you pointed out, that he chose an entirely scientific basis for his lecture. And you do wonder about the things he left out. But as you say, he was fascinated by the scientific basis yes. of uh, putrefaction yes. and its link with fermentation. But if you go back to his address to the BMA in 1871, uh, he, he, he gives a lot of the science of uh, uh, fermentation and he talks about his flasks of urine at that point. And, but then he goes on to discuss his antiseptic system. And it's just fascinating to me that he didn't really mention that at all in his uh, new role at King's Yes, well he did, he did give a lecture like this when he first went to Edinburgh too. I mean, he spoke, he's been speaking about fermentation for longer than this lecture would suggest. He says it's in the last two months, but I think the last two months have been the absolute crowning glory because he'd done the purification. He, he cracked it at yeah, last. Absolutely, he carried on doing work, didn't he? He carried on yeah, doing work. Yeah, well, yes, he carries on, work. yes. Yeah, it's fascinating. The really, commonplace books continue until Agnes dies. But, but uh, even so, you would think he's taken up this new post as a professor of clinical surgery, and you just wonder, is he, is he just thinking, well, perhaps I don't want to offend any of the surgeons at King's, I'm not going to discuss my antiseptic principles. No, I think he's saying this is more important, because right. if you understand <laughs> sepsis, you can do better surgery. And he's trying to get them to understand what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's also the case that in 1875 there had been a discussion of germs at the uh, Pathological Society where Bastian had done very well. Bastian had kind of carried the day. And that was seen to be London's scepticism towards germs and that spontaneous generation was still current in, amongst yeah. London surgeons. I think that might be part of the context. So, do you want to say something about the audience? Because the audience wasn't from King's, is it? Well, I presume some of them all were. But the majority, I think the majority were his friends from the SR, from the Royal Society. From the Royal Society. So it was a huge scientific gathering of people. I've been trying to find who attended, who attended. And it's quite difficult to find who they all were. You know, there's no attendance list, sadly, and no invites to the reception afterwards or anything like that. It's really hard to find a King's end. I'm not sure where I read it. You'd have to read lots of descriptions and, you know, go through loads of people's memoirs to see who might have said they were present. I, I mean, is more known about that, Marguerite? Because that, that would be really interesting to know who actually really was there. I mean, he says it's yeah. lots of distinguished men. Okay, we've got time for two more questions, just two more. Uh, that was lovely, to see a text unpacked like that, a manuscript unpacked like that, it's very nice. A kind of cautionary tale that a manuscript like that is not necessarily the final word, however, in that uh, a couple of days ago at the welcome, I was reading 
Robert Storrs of Doncaster's uh, case books. And there's, there's a lecture he gave. And in, I, I thought first it was his handwriting. Then comes a page with his handwriting saying, well, the guy who was taking down the lecture messed some things up. He got some things in the wrong order and so on. And so this will all be straightened out in the printed version of my article. So sometimes yeah. the printed version may be more nearly yeah. what the man well, said. certainly, yes. And there is case of a word in, in the manuscript which doesn't appear to be altered in the printed text, right. where he talks about the evolution, evolution of the, of the fermentation. And the, the 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 transcriber put evolution, and it's not evolution; it's evolution. Right. You know, there, I, I am aware of that. Yeah. I'm aware of that. But I think the applause and things like that, you know, it's very clear what's going on in the room. Yeah, I think as a microbiologist, I, I would emphasize the importance of the limit dilution method that was using, because it was still being used 50 years later, oh, to do the same kind of kind of thing where you could get a pure culture because the method hadn't yet been invented by trying to cork and plates or all that kind of stuff. So that's really what we should do more to 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 really get that uh, as a really really highly important historical fact. The other thing is, it would if the message get back to Florence Nightingale. Because about about you know fermentation, the importance, and all this kind of thing. Because I she don't was know. a spontaneous generation. Yes, well, she. The thing is, she was in favour of new, free, clean hospitals with good ventilation and cleanliness. But that was um, on the myosmatic theory, wasn't it? Well, I don't know what it was on. She she had worked in the most terrible <coughs> stinking yeah. places, and she knew that the stink was something you wanted to avoid, and the cleanliness helped. I'm sure that she and he had had um, would have had a lot in common. Yeah, I, 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 I noticed the nursing does talk about spontaneous generation of smallpox and germs mm. and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, 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 the final comment, one of the paradoxes is that the history of bacteriology, as it's been written, is largely the history of medical bacteriology. Mm. The history of general bacteriology has been very poorly served. And so one reason why this work has not been recognised is actually because the success of medical, medical. Yeah, yeah, because of the success of medical bacteriology. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much. And I'm sure the applause. <laughs>
Um, apart from inviting you to take a stroll around whilst I chat, have a look at some of the lovely things we have laid out. I thought what I'd do, um, because what I've been interested in for a number of years are the biographies of collections and the biographies of objects and what they do. And what I thought I'd do is to have a think about what objects relating to Lister in museums and archives do. And my argument will be that they compose, uh, they comprise a three-dimensional memorial uh, to Lister, spread out over the different collections in the United Kingdom and beyond above them, and what I'll call a material hagiography. Um, we've heard about the role of uh, his disciples, and we'll hear tomorrow about the role of commemorative activities in the construction of this reputation. I want to talk about something more brute, about the role of things, about the role of matter. Um, have a look at that object, uh, and we'll come back to it um, uh, towards the end. So, Mister, um, there's no need to go into his biography, um, but it's worth noting if we're thinking about what his reputation does. Um, I take his election to the peerage to be a key moment in the history of surgery in the legitimacy of the profession. I think, and those people in the room I've spoken to um, haven't denied it, that he may have been the, not only the first surgical peer, but the first peer of any medical um, flavor. And this, I think, is, is well, the first trained who's elected on, on the basis of that. And this, I think, is um, a representative of the status of post-antiseptic, um, of antiseptic going into aseptic surgery at the time. But as an undeniable patron saint of the surgical profession, one needs to think about how this reputation was built. We've heard that there's some yeah, a query about his own uh, lecturing skill. Uh, a senior colleague uh, commented earlier today that he probably sounded a little bit like, was it David Beckham then? Probably. <laughs> um, and, you know, and we know from Connor and Connor that he um, uh, had you know, not the most straightforward of argumentative styles. So how does this reputation get built? Um, and we know from Crowden Dupree uh, how it starts to get built during his life. I'm interested in what happens after his death. We heard already in this session that he has uh, service in Westminster Abbey, but he's um, buried in Hampstead next to Agnes. Um, there's a list of memorial committees set up to raise funds, and the first thing they do is direct this simple marble medallion in the Abbey itself, um, which is uh, designed by Sir Thomas Brock um, and unveiled in 1915 in the science corner of the Abbey. There's also plans for a large and more conspicuous monument, which we'll come back to in a moment. We've heard uh, from Professor McGrather about the Lister Medal, uh, first awarded in um, uh, 1924. Um, this is showing the medal itself. This large and conspicuous <coughs> monument is on your right here. It's finally erected and um, unveiled in 1924 in Portland Place, again um, by Sir Thomas Brock, uh, one of the last um, uh, pieces of work he did. Uh, it's telling that Lister and Hunter are the only surgeons to have um, a public statuary 
um, in the capital, and that fits well with their, their perceived status in the surgical firm. There are plaques as well. Um, Dr. Horton was telling us about this central plaque here, which is of course at King's. Can anybody identify the one on the left? UCL. UCL plaque, and the one on the right? Huh? Is it Park Crescent? No? It's here. Exactly. Just right out there. It's funny. <laughs> That's right. but I, um, the point to make was that he is, I believe, unique in having plaques at both uh, King's and the Codliscala Street, I believe. Um, but I realised that I would be remiss if I didn't put a picture of, um, of our own plaque there. Um, and I think the only really decorative element of the new very clean entrance space. But material uh, reputation is built not only in statuary and decoration, but also in things, um, which is why I show his nephew, uh, Rickman Godley, who present company accepted as one of our favorite um, past presidents. He was president, and when, uh, when his own, um, when Mr. dies, and is instrumental in bringing the manuscript and instrument collections of Mr. into the college. Here, they're catalogued painstakingly by Alvin Doran, who's a, a gynecologist who, who works for 20 years cataloging the instrument collections. Among the 400 instruments, um, most of which survive, um, there are three categories. The first category in this um, typescript are the uh, instruments that were designed or, or seriously modified by Lister. Um, his tourniquets, button sutures, bone pegs, sinus forts, etc., etc., um, added to which are instruments such as Liston, Liston's knives, designed and used before Liston's time, but practically made um, Lister's own through adoption and constant use, so they're added to his own armamentarium. And so far, not so unusual for a prominent surgeon to have um, uh, such a collection in a collection like we have today um, here. But it's the second and third categories I'm interested in. These are instruments kind of used by him but not designed, and instruments given to him. So in here are the uh, instruments given to him by Simon, his father-in-law, but also, and this is my favorite, um, there are some introduced one who is in active practice that met with his active disapproval. So the Lister collection of instruments actually includes instruments that he didn't like, but because they're part of the Lister collection, they achieve this kind of talismanic, this talismanic status. A lot of them are, most of them are put in this um, uh, custom-designed cabinet, uh, uh, designed and built by the college's architect Eustace Freer in 1924 to all his instruments, his books, and his and his papers. Um, they're added to by people like Moynihan, who, who um, you know, the open market for list of material um, in the early decades is is quite active, and more comes in. Um, in 1940, the collection is considered the most valuable of all historical instruments, which is quite a few by this time. Um, Doran, you know, this will be a year of Doran's work, whereas he's 20 years doing all the rest. It's a huge collection by this time. Um, and it's the Lister collection that's put in special <laughs> super safe storage. 
but only a few of those uh, instruments are destroyed when the college is bombed in 1941, whereas two-thirds of the rest of the collection, including Hunter's collection, um, are destroyed. After the war, the case is placed in the entrance hall to the college, so when you come into the Palace of Surgery, the first thing you see is a specially designed cabinet to Lister, and it's now, as you'll all have been upstairs at lunchtime, um, in the upper um, uh, level of the um, uh, beautifully refurbished Hunterian Museum, and if this isn't a shrine to Lister, I don't know what is. But it's not only three-dimensional material, but also two-dimensional. Shown here, um, one of the so-called Lister rolls, what we call the Victorian PowerPoint. My colleague Louise King was photographed when they were first refurbished around a year ago, and as you'll see, she's still been guarding them ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Not often does she need their sight. Um, how many of them are there, Louise, remind me? There are six. There are six of them, and uh, what are their uh, span of sizes? So these are incredible, and as you, I mean, I showed this to show the, I mean, we have nice images of, uh, you know, cleaned up images, but you don't get a sense of the scale, and of course you can have a look at one yourself. And what was it that was done to them to preserve them last year, thanks to the generosity of the fellowship and membership, I should add? Yeah, um, the tears were Um, and Ruth's already given us wonderful detail about how um, uh, a lot of the illustrations were developed with Camera Lucida. There's a wonderful um, uh, quote from Francis Mitchell Caird, um, uh, who says, I was entrusted, um, he remembers later in life, I was entrusted to enlarge to diagram size, this size we assume, Lister's Camera Lucida drawings. The huge scrolls were spread out on the carpet, and with the aid of a Liston's long splint used as a ruler, the lettering was affected. And you can see the sort of construction lines, certainly they're very clear on the one we've got out today. These few happy evenings were sometimes prolonged until midnight, for those long hours, when Mrs. Lister, interested in the proceedings, would enter with sherry and biscuits. <laughs> Um, and I'm still new on this job, only here a couple of years, um, and I'm still discovering new things. So I came across my colleague uh, Karen unrolling one of the, um, another of the smaller list rolls we have, um, which is no text, but just an interesting pattern, I thought, which turns out to be the, was it the blood splatter of a rabbit? That's right. In a very, very long, uh, how long was the roll again? Uh, it is actually a binding And this is, as we've heard from Ruth as well, an extraordinary archival collection. And uh, we encourage uh, those of you who are uh, inclined to come and, uh, come and use it when you can. Other museums also memorialize this, though I should accept that there are other museums. There may be other royal colleges, and I even hear tell there's another Ontario museum. And I know it's not um, 
the funding thing to, to mention such places at this time. But you know, we're getting towards the end of the day. I think we can afford to be generous. Um, as part of the centenary in, in 1927, um, at the British Medical Association's meeting in Edinburgh, an exhibit dubbed the Lord Lister Relic Museum was staged, including 300 photos, manuscripts, medals, etc., including a model of the famous glass garden, so that we know that within 15 years of his death, things associated with him had already achieved the status of relics. And relics, as defined by the OED, are the belongings of a saint or a martyr or another deceased holy person, carefully preserved as an object of veneration. So uh, our Edinburgh colleagues continue to house Lister artifacts, including his frock coat. In Glasgow, the Hunterian up there has important material, including um, a wheelchair that he used in his last years that was until the year before the last at UCL, but during part of their collections review, um, they offered this up for transfer, and Glasgow snapped it up. Um, there's a lot of material there from uh, Lister's wall, which was demolished, I believe, in 1924. And here, into the story, I won't go into detail, but here, Sir Henry Welcome pops up. And you can't go far when looking at the history of medical collections without encountering um, Sir Henry. Um, Welcome's fascination with Lister is one of the reasons why there's such an incredible collection of material relating to Lister um, uh, surviving. Um, when the uh, Lister Ward was uh, demolished, Welcome sent up three truckloads, or when he sent up three trucks, they came back with three truckloads of material. And a lot of that was used in the uh, Welcome Historical Medical Museum um, to reconstruct, they, they made a, a reconstruction of the ward in the corner of the museum. Um, I, this would have been up at um, the, the same Houston um, Road building that they're in now, and you can see. No. No? <laughs> Where would it have been at that point? Um, is it Wigmore Street? Wigmore Street. Yeah. Okay, Wigmore Street. Um, the list of ward reconstruction at the far end of the building there. Um, <coughs> Remnants of this massive collection uh, are now in the Science Museum um, and elsewhere. Some, such as this gold watch and walking stick, I should add, are currently on temporary display at the Morn Library at King's College, London, until 14th of April, I believe, and a very nice display of this, too. We've also known the archival material to them, and we're probably credited and we're very pleased to see. That collection even, even includes, not on display, but the Science Museum collection, which is technically still on loan from Welcome Trust, so they can never um, rationalize it, includes door handles that are kept, and I quote, because Lister will have touched them. <laughs> it gets stranger, and I'm just going to quote. Other items from the, uh, the, uh, that Henry Welcome had gathered that were redistributed to the Hunter Museum and Art Gallery in Glasgow, there's a chimney pot, there's a couple of handles, there's a cupboard door, and some um, bed, bed pegs, um, bed feet uh, collected there. Which brings us back to this object, can anyone identify it? Ventilator. Precisely. You're cheating a little bit. <laughs> um, it's a wall ventilator. So, uh, welcome has his uh, agents go up and pick up anything they could. And as a result, we have, um, I think, pretty unusually 
comprehensive collection of materials associated with a particular award went to make it. I, I haven't seen this slide used elsewhere in this conference, but yet, yeah, I think it will crack someone will have had it in their slides tomorrow. <laughs> but to conclude, um, probably more uh, representative of the displays and collections relating to Lister um, is, uh, are his carbolic sprays, this the famous donkey engine that we have on display upstairs, although of course even this is interesting because it's only in use for a decade or so and he moves away from it himself. But it's these, it's the Lister spray and we saw one wonderfully on display at uh, Safari's lunchtime lecture um, recently. It's this that you know, ends up um, um, you know, materializing uh, Lister's reputation um, as a, um, an instrument form. Um, these constitute, as I said at the start, three-dimensional memorializations of Lister, physical evidence not only of his techniques and his research, but also of his reputation and his professional credibility. And um, uh, this is, I mean, his status in that key moment in the late 19th century is one reason why um, he's so popular among the profession and so popular among the surgical and museum professions. Um, the museologist Sue Pierce uh, has written about personal collectors, um, you know, when people gather anything from ceramics to teddy bears. She talks about their collections as a material autobiography. And from that, I want to think about what we do with material associated with a particular individual, whether door handles or instruments he didn't like, and think of them as a material hagiography. You know as well as I do that hagiography is this is writing about literally the writing about sense. In historical terms, in, in contemporary social history, this is often um, a bad word. We're taught not to sanctify and reify. But it's interesting that this is done, and it's interesting to unpack the reasons for this. And I'd like to end with maybe a little chance for questions and scroll around the scrolls, but just thinking that it's interesting that we do this. I think that both professions, historical and surgical, are you know, um, uh, articulate and aware enough to see that we're doing this. And also, none of us here will be uh, uh, unaware of the dangers that if you're looking at a terribly bright star, it's aura can obscure the other stars around it. So that if we're doing this with material, if we're writing um, uh, about this, uh, we ought not, and none of us will, I'm sure, forget about the other people, and the other surgeons, the other practitioners who were involved in the surgical revolutions we're talking about. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sam. Um, are there any questions or comments?
sorry, medical meetings, he wanted the portraiture of everybody involved. He wanted people who spoke to him, learned from him, and, and I think that's quite novel at the time and something that maybe we have gone away from today. But I'm quite honoured being in the same room as various people that I hope will continue to to follow on with the, the Listerian method and, and everything we are in. So I'm just very grateful. I, mean, I think it's worth noting that, that Waltram was, um, um, as a collector, he wasn't a gourmet, he was a gourmet. Not just collect everything in that, he was relatively democratic, which is a kind of difficult in collection management terms. Um, he's the only collector um, that I know of whereby the uh, rationalisation was made of not an item, was put in tons on the distributor's collection. Sam, I want to say that um, it, it's not difficult to laugh at that kind of collecting, but when you think about what Welcome was doing, he was trying to make rooms that would look authentic. And it's really hard to make whole rooms that look authentic unless you've got authentic stuff. And <coughs> the painting that we saw earlier on with the 1950s picture of what the ward was like when Lister was doing it in the 1860s, the first operation on the little boy, where everything was green and there were 1950s nurses dressed in Victorian clothes. Completely phony. Absolutely phony. Uh, whereas this kind of stuff, you can see there's a kind of authenticity going on in the collecting here for the kind of galleries that Welcome wanted to build. And you can see the logic, you can understand the logic. Actually, it's not all bad, it's not all hagiography, it's about authenticity. I mean, I take your point as a historian, one welcomes it as uh, uh, for its, for what it can offer in terms of authenticity. Yeah. As a collection manager, I understand that, but having seen the welcome collection from behind the scenes, some of it was great shame that they actually did rationalise it. Yeah. Good question. Absolutely, yes, it's just welcome rights in large and material cultures. That's my point. Yeah. I'm happy to say that we have a, a, a Lister spray on display in Aberdeen in the medical school, but it's not associated with Lister, it's associated with Alexander Oxford, so we've got different dialogue hanging on going on there. There's photographs of the spray actually in use, so you can see the ward, you can see the patients, you can see the nurses, you know, in their authentic uh, uh, costumes and so on. So, but the list of sprays is interesting, isn't it? Because it was something that came and then it went. Yeah. Uh, and so it, was, it wasn't a failure, but it was a sort of 
Part of the evolution of yeah, it's, only, it's only kind of one moment, but it's that moment can often capture um, uh, a sort of you know, it becomes a sort of iconic moment in the career. Um, Darwin's finishes become sort of um, metonymic, or yes. represent the whole of, of what is a really complex, uh, massive intellectual process get wrapped around this one rather, um, well, in the Bird schemes like a people object that is a bit more sturdy. Yes. Yeah. Has, has, has Upton Park claimed Lista? Is there a plaque in the East End? I don't know. Uh, there's a rather unpleasant block of flats there. Just now, there you go. Writ large in, in architecture. Because okay. uh, uh, after the 1881 International Medical Congress, a statue of Harvey appeared in Folkestone. Um, and it's still there, and, and Harvey had no, you know, it's 200, 300 years on, um, and he was claimed by folks to as a, as a, as a hero, so I wonder, if, I wonder how far it went. Uh, just a comment, uh, having spent a little bit of time at the Pasteur Institute, and seeing the hagiography that went on there regarding Pasteur, I, don't, I wonder if there wasn't some sense of competition there. At the Pasteur Institute, you can go see a sitting room, and it has reminiscent of some of the things you said here terms of the door handles and the like. Absolutely, the phenomenon is widespread. If we were up in Regent's Park, we'd be talking not about Hunter and uh, Lister, but uh, Harvey and Osler or, or some such. I mean, it's something that professions do and something that museums do in concert as professions. It's not, I'm not casting any, you know, any particular, it's just in Lister, it's just, it's really quite striking. That wasn't my point. My point yeah. is that I think if, at that period of time, there may have been some ongoing rivalry between Pasteur uh, and <coughs> with regard to the memory of Pasteur and the memory of Lister. Yeah. Okay, well, well, we'll finish there. I mean, I'd just like to end on one note, which is I, I mentioned in my talk this morning that I'm, I'm using new technologies for my, my research. The other thing I'm doing, and I, think enough, I know a number of historians do this, is that we now use eBay actually buy material objects and books. It's, very, it's, it's amazing what you can get on eBay just with a regular search of the things I've for a couple of projects. I've got some really valuable things, so next to nothing on that. But anyway, um, I'd like to thank all of our speakers and like to thank the audience for an excellent discussion. And we'll now have a tea break until half past five when we reconvene in the lecture here. So you can thank all our speakers again.